It's Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking with Adam Kanakin, the founder of the International Law Enforcement Training Network, a networking and training platform designed for creating and facilitating international police training. Adam's the host of the Tactical Breakdown podcast, which helped lead to the development of the ILET network. He spent six years in the Canadian forces as an infantry officer, ending his career as a regimental training officer. Along with his military experience, Adam has a certified defensive tactics and martial arts instructor training, holds professional training accreditation throughout Canada, and is also an active member of the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association, ILEDA, of which I'm also a member. So welcome, Adam. Brother, thanks for having me, man. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we got together a week or so ago on your podcast with some other uh, law enforcement podcasters. Great session. Uh, it was just a, a shoot around, if you will, and we hit so many topics. And so, you know, I, I learned from you that you've got some really good um, background on use of force. And of course, that's a, a topic we've all been kicking around lately. And uh, it seems like, you know, the what used to be the great highway of force options is uh, narrowing by the day. So uh, many agencies have called um, the carotid uh, hold, which they also call the choke hold, uh, into question about the, the use. Um, some agencies have gone to, to ban them altogether. Some state legislature uh, moves have gone to ban the carotid hold and any kind of uh, neck restraint. And of course, you know, uh, the NYPD went as far as uh, coming up with criminal charges if any of their aid officers um, place any sort of body part on top of a, a supine um, suspect. So from a trainer's perspective, tell us what you're hearing. What are you seeing? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I mean, I want to preface this entire conversation by saying I don't in any way, shape or form consider myself an expert when it comes to use of force. There's many, many more people that are a lot smarter than me, both in the United States and Canada and around the world on this topic. And, and so I'm sure I'll end up referencing them at some point uh, throughout the day. But because of what we do with Islet Network, and, and this is something you and I talked off about offline, um, I have the opportunity to sit and learn from these top level instructors. And so some of it rubs off. And a lot of it is my own personal experiences being a martial arts and defensive tactics instructor for my career. And um, I mean, this is a, such an interesting conversation. Um, and I think it's important to understand the background first on this topic for those that don't, because I think when we, and later on down the road, I know we're going to get to this, but I think that's the major issue that we're having. Um, and it's understanding of concepts. So Let's, let's use that word chokehold that you brought up. Um, that's a major issue is that we're still, we still have officers that are referring to, to these uh, vascular neck restraints as chokeholds. Um, it's, it's a very, it's, it's semantics. We're arguing verbiage, but in a court of law, it means a lot. In the court of public opinion, it means a lot. And so we have to be very cautious about how we're terming these, these techniques and these systems that we're using. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about restraints, neck restraints, um, I just want to preface this by going over some of the, the core components of it. 
Um, first and foremost, I mean, if for those of you familiar in the martial arts, whether it's jujitsu or judo, um, and we can argue whether or not those are one and the same or where they came from and what came first, the chicken or the egg. But the, the technical term or the term that we use for the techniques are shimiwaza, um, which would be a neck restraint. And now when we teach neck restraints, there's two basic types of neck restraints, respiratory neck restraints and carotid or vascular restraints. Um, res respiratory restraints are those armbar type neck restraints where you're actually applying um, a mechanical pressure or compression over the structures of the anterior portion of the throat. Um, that can cause asphyxiation, um, which can likely lead to serious harm or death on the part of the suspect. Um, and so the second part of that would be the, the, the vascular or carotid neck restraints, or sometimes termed as vascular neck restraints, where we're basically using lateral compression um, on the neck to partially or completely occlude um, blood flow through the carotid arteries or um, the jugular veins. Now, this does not affect your subject's ability to breathe, and that's the key component of it. Um, and so, and it also, another component that we don't always talk about is that, that it doesn't cause damage to the cerebral vertebrae. Um, and so, the cervical vertebrae, pardon me. And so, that's another key component. So, when we talk about the two types, um, you know, a lot of people, when we talk about neck restraints, will use terms like rear naked choke. Um, uh, baseball choke, uh, any type of choke, right? You watch UFC, you have all these people watching UFC and it's choke this, choke that. The problem is, is that we're terming it wrong. Um, we have to get away from that first and foremost. We have to start using the correct terminology. Um, and because when we look at the literature and we look at what's happening in the courts, there, there are certain things that are accepted. And then, and a lot of that has to do with medical terminology and these experts that come in and so we have to use that when we're writing reports, when we're, when we're debriefing, when we're dictating, all of it has to be in alignment so that we're not misspeaking and having that taken out of context mm. um, is, is a key component that I see, I still see. Um, we see it in the private fields. We see it in law enforcement um, and kind of everywhere. And so that's, um, I just wanted to bring that up because those are two things that a lot of times we, some people get, uh, misconstrued and I just wanted to kind of set the record straight on those. Yeah, good points. But clearly I think the community people uh they that that's all they hear. Choke. You can say carotid all day long, but that's what they that's their default. It's just like a taser, right? I get students writing all the time about a taser, a taser, a taser when Rick Smith, the president and CEO of Taser says, no, they're like taser weapons. Don't call them taser. It, there's a trademark issue, but it's also, you know, electrical conducted uh, devices or weapons. But, you know, we tend to grab what's, you know, right in front of us on the shelf. So, uh, you know, for anybody who's never heard of carotid or doesn't understand the difference that you just, you know, greatly explained the, the bar arm choke as opposed to the carotid where you, you cut off oxygen to the brain um, or the blood flow uh, that takes oxygen to the brain that um, they don't understand the differences and they don't often times care, right? They just don't want cops putting their arms around people's heads or necks. Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy because when we talk about the public's and what, what, what the biggest thing is we obviously don't want to, at the end of these situations, we don't want to have a suspect lying dead on the ground. That's, right. 
that's our goal, right? Is to get them safely controlled, restrained, and, and have the situation end with everyone safe. Um, I think what the public is missing is how many lives using neck restraints has actually saved. And it's hard to, we can't put a number on, on maybes, on might've happened, right? We can't put a number on that. But when you talk to officers on the ground, it's like, if I didn't have that option, I would have had to shoot the guy. Right. Like you, you, that never comes up in conversation for some reason with all of these, these experts that go on the news and talk about all this stuff. We, we seem to be missing that component every single time. Great point. Well, it's, it's also like the, the shooting, you know, the fatal shooting by a police officer. It's like getting, you know, the, the, the odds are astronomical, like getting hit by lightning. Well, just like you, you pointed out, how many times ha has an officer used a carotid with no ill effects, certainly not death. And the numbers are extremely limited in, in as far as the test size. So yeah, you're right on there. Well, I mean, it's, it's so crazy. If you want to talk about safety and, and you want to talk about not causing injury to a subject, I mean, let's look at jujitsu as a sport. I, I am, I'm a jujitsu player. Um, I, I'm no, I'm not an expert or, or black belt by any means. I've, I've only been doing it for, for two or three years. Um, but when we look at jujitsu, it's a sport, a BJJ specifically, um, you look at that as a sport, hundreds of thousands of people and children practice that every single day in North America alone, right? The amount of chokes that are applied, if we want to use chokes, right, as a term or neck restraints that are applied in practice are hundreds, if not millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions every single day. Okay. Yeah. How many deaths are there? Zero. There's zero training or practice deaths in jujitsu schools around North America. Hmm. How is this now termed a dangerous technique? Um, now, obviously, I'm I'm speaking hyperbolic. There are there's many many situations and 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 things like that that we could bring into play that would change the narrative on that. But from a from a very base level perspective, the techniques themselves are inherently safe. Hmm. We cannot like when we, when I apply a, a vascular neck restraint, whether it's a bilateral neck restraint, which would be something similar to a choke hold, like a rear naked choke where my elbow is in the center of their, their neck um, or their throat. And then my, my bicep and my forearm are laterally on both sides of their neck and I compress yeah. or something like a shoulder pin technique that a lot of officers in the United States and Canada will be familiar with um, more commonly associated with PPCT. Um, where they have the shoulder pin technique where you're using the subject's shoulder as one side of compression and you're using your, your forearm as the, the other side of compression. Mm -hmm. When we look at all of these techniques, there isn't, there, the actual technique isn't causing damage. The, um, there's, a great, um, there's a great article, it's not even an article, it's a paper. It's like a hundred and plus page paper that was published in 2007 by Chris Butler, um, who's now one of the... Uh, training experts over at Force Science Institute, um, former inspector for Calgary Police, and Dr. Christine Hall. And now this was published up in Canada, but it was basically an overview of, of North American policing for neck restraints. Um, I can, I'll send you the link. Um, you can share it um, in the show notes maybe uh, with everyone. 
Um, but it's a 2007 national study on neck restraints in policing is what it's titled. Okay. Um, it goes super far into depth on absolutely every topic from every medical condition that could play a part to all of the technical components. Um, and those are the resources that we need to be giving our lawmakers that we need to be giving our trainers um, as an use of force instructor, you need to understand the literature. You need to understand all of the components of what you're teaching. It can't just be where I took a 40 hour training course and now I'm sharing that knowledge with an officer because you miss very, very key components. Um, and it's, it's as simple as this. It's as simple as when I'm teaching somebody to apply a neck restraint, it's going to them and, and showing them, hey, listen, if you're, you think you're comfortable here, but guess what? If you're in the middle of a fight, maybe you're in um, somewhere warm, okay? I'm sure there's a few places that people can think of that are warm, right? Um, you're sweating. You're just in a foot chase, right? You're sweating, subject sweating. There's a lot of liquid in between you and them, even if I'm, especially if I'm skin to skin. If I go to apply that, that, that restraint on their throat, on their neck, and I, I feel like I'm in a good position, but all of a sudden something slips and I'm, and because I'm all, I'm all hyped up, I'm cranking on that guy to try to choke, to, to choke him out is what the term they would use. Right. But right, to, right. Try to, to gain compliance, what's going to happen is I'm going to actually be now compressing on that anterior portion of the throat and I could cause respiratory issues, causing asphyxiation, leading to death. But if I don't explain that to the officer in training and saying, here's a situation that you have to look out for. And they've never even been exposed to that. When it happens on the street, they're not going to know. And they're going to be like, I did what I was taught. I did what I was told. I don't know what happened. Yeah, and it, it's a perishable skill to be sure. And if you don't practice it, like you say, there can mistakes can be made. Um, I think we did the carotid in the police academy. And then the only time you practice it again was in application on the street. So there's, there's yeah. certainly that, that, that margin of error there. Well, yeah. And that, and that brings up a whole, whole nother topic of, of the way we do training. Right. I mean, that's, and that's my bread and butter. I love talking about training modalities and methodologies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just had a great conversation today uh, with Dr. Bill Lewinsky out of force science. Uh, we were talking about firearms training, but the same, the same things apply about block and silo training, right. Closed training models versus open training models and inter interspersed training, um, interleave training models and how we actually learn as human beings, right? I can't just show somebody something once and then expect them to know how to do it effectively seven months down the road. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. Some, there are outliers. There are people that can take a piece of information from today and revisit it two years from now and get 90, get the 95% solution because that's how they're wired. Yeah, that is such a small fraction of the population that we would never teach to that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but that's what we're kind of seeing with, with police forces right now, which is why there's this massive push to change the way that we do policing and change the way that we do police training. Yeah. But a lot of these situations that we've seen where uh, officers had to resort from hands-on to lethal force options were you know, a DUI, you're up close, personal, giving somebody the test. Uh, maybe you're doing a nystagmus test, and then all of a sudden they go off on you. We've seen it recently in the uh, individual who did not want to go along with the um, DUI. So he grapples with the two officers, uh, gets the upper hand, takes one of them's taser, and run, runs. And uh, he's 
clicking away trying to fire the taser at them. So in those cases, the baton, pepper spray, certainly a beanbag shotgun or ERIW, none of those would be appropriate. Uh, you know, your partner's holding on, you're going to, you know, hit them with your with a taser-like weapon and they're connected, that could be a big problem as well. So Henner Gracie was on the show uh, a few weeks ago and he, of course, is a huge proponent of jujitsu, um, as it sounds like you are too. But then, you know, at first I, I discounted the idea of jujitsu about a year or so ago, maybe two years ago when uh, my, my old partner, Doug Wiley and I were talking about it. And I just didn't see it because I know the, the training necessary to make someone proficient would, wouldn't be supported by administrations. But now, totally new ball game. Use of force on the table. They want to take force options off. Who do we go to, to to lobby to say, hey, look, you really want police to go hands-on, but be good about it and not hurt anyone and get the fight over quick, invest in this kind of training. Are, are you a proponent for that kind of training? That's a very difficult question. Um, and, and I'll explain why. There's so many components to that, what you just said. Um, there's some overlaying factors that I think that I am definitely in favor of. Um, do I think that Brazilian jiu-jitsu should be taught to every officer? Yes and no. I mean, listen, I'm a trainer. Any, any additional training is going to be beneficial. There's no, there's no one that's going to debate that. The more training somebody gets, the more proficient they're going to be. Um, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu the end-all and be-all? I'm not going to say that it is or that it isn't. I, I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I love it from a practical application component. I also love it from a sport component. Um, and there's definitely differences between the two of those. Um, a lot of the arguments that get made against Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, is made from a, uh, an uneducated position and that it, the, the standpoint being is that that's a sport that's not applicable in how we do things. Um, you have to understand that Brazilian jiu-jitsu that you see on TV, in MMA, in UFC is one component of the art. That is the sport component that has rules and regulations. Mm. The, the art itself was designed as a self-defense art that has a lot more components to it than what you see in sport because you can't use them in sport. They'd be illegal. Um, same thing, you, you brought up Henner Gracie. Um, the, he, they have a program through Gracie University, um, which is the GST program, the, the Gracie Survival Tactics Program, which I've had exposure to. It's basically designed for law enforcement officers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that program basically is walks you through the difference between sport jujitsu and the way it would be. So now I gain control of a subject. How do I get them into a prone handcuffing position? Mm -hmm. How do I control a weapon? How do I control this? How do I control that? It's, it's different than what you would see in sport. Um, you brought up New York earlier with the, the new regulations that they came out with in New York. Um, he did one of the best explanations. It's on YouTube right now. Anybody listening yeah. to this can go and watch it. Um, just search Henner Gracie, R-E-N-E-R -E -E Gracie, um, New York, whatever, uh, New York, policy. Yeah. and it'll come up and it's a short video. Um, it's him and his brother, but he basically breaks down their thoughts on the pros and cons of, and mostly cons mm -hmm. of, of what mm -hmm. they've done in New York. Um, 
and, and that's a dangerous thing. Um, like I said, we, you know, you, you start taking tools away from officers that's going to allow them to remedy a situation safely. Mm. Um, you're going to end up with more outcomes that you don't want. Right. And it's, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing that's happening in New York. I don't know what's going to happen with it. But at the end of the day, it's, a, it's another case of lawmakers making decisions that are uneducated. Um, they don't have understanding of what actually is happening. Um, and my, to, to go back to your question, what do I think needs to happen? You know, um, my favorite thing when it comes to use of force, defensive tactics training, um, scenario-based training, de-escalation is a hot topic right now. Mm. Uh, we should take these lawmakers and we should throw them in a simulator. We should take them and throw them into training. Hey, listen, if you're going to be making decisions on what our officers are doing as far as techniques go and training and everything, I want to give you two hours of exposure to this, just something so that you have a, a, a groundwork, something to work off of a, a starting point. So you understand a, a very small component of it, right? Yeah. We, we see this all the time. There was a great video that came out many years ago. Um, it's still on YouTube. I can't remember what it was a sheriff's agency. I can't remember where it was. They had a, a pastor, I believe uh, a pastor come out, do some use of force training with them. It was a shoot, no shoot scenario. They were in a parking lot. Um, and uh, he was, he was queued up. He had a training pistol with them. Um, and then they had the officer role playing and the, the pastor at the time ended up during the scenario, uh, drew and fired and shot the unarmed person and killed him. Um, and they were like, why'd you shoot him? And he's like, I don't know. I thought my life was in danger. I thought he like, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And it's like, this is a person that was adamantly against all of this stuff. And in, in a very short period of time was given enough information that, that was his own doing essentially that ended up changing his perception on it. I'm not saying it's the end all and be all solution, but I'm saying it's another way to educate these people that are making these decisions. And hopefully it'll happen before a decision gets made that ends up costing somebody their life. Uh, you're a hundred percent right on this. And we've seen the president elect say, come on, man, just shoot him in the leg. And I mean, that is like, you know, the greatest urban legend that we've all heard that any law enforcement use of force trainers ever heard is why don't you shoot the gun out of their hand? Why don't you shoot them in the leg? Why don't you fire a warning shot? All these just ridiculous ideas. I actually saw, uh, I was in a community um, building academy where we, we went and saw different aspects of the government and we saw the police uh, segment and one of the one of my um, colleagues, uh, fellow classmate, got up in the shoot to don't shoot, and it was a rapidly uh, disintegrating, deteriorating domestic violence situation where you could clearly see a gun on a tabletop. The aggressor kept yelling at you, the, the officer, and kept saying, I'll, I'll shoot you, I'll shoot you. He grabs the gun, he points it, and he fires six shots. And my classmate stood there, never pulled the gun out of the holster. And afterwards I said, holy smokes, did you freeze? What, you know, what, what went on? What was going through your mind? And he said, hey, I am never going to pull that gun and I'm never going to shoot another human being. So I think, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're dealing with that sometimes, right? And some, you know, when you talk about rationalizing or de-escalating with, with an offender, 
we, you know, we're all under the assumption that the person's going to be rational, maybe that we give them commands and they respond or there's, you know, we try to reason with them, but you know, these guys can be drug or alcohol induced mental illness craze. They have no intention of complying with your de-escalation techniques, no matter how good they may be. Yeah. I think there's two important things that you brought up there. One is the belief of some people or just the misunderstanding of the types of human beings that exist in the world mm -hmm. that some people cannot and it's, and it's no fault of their own, but some people do not have the ability to comprehend that some people literally will kill you for no other reason than they just want to um, it, it, for no reason whatsoever. And this doesn't mean to have to be there. Means so that there's some type of psychotic break or there's some type of mental health issue. There are literally people out there that will do harm to you to simply get a sandwich, to take your phone, to get your car, whatever it is. And people can't wrap their head up because they themselves would never hurt somebody. So they can't imagine that somebody else would, would levy that type of violence onto them. Right. Um, I have a, you know, and to go back to your other thing there, I had a, I have a very close friend of mine who's a police officer up here in Canada. Um, and I remember he was about three years in and uh, every year he would give me hit, like he'd give me alloc his allocated rounds. Um, and in Canada, we don't get a lot of rounds. Um, he would give me his allocated rounds. He's like, I'm not going to use these. And, and uh, I'm like, why? He's like, I, I don't want to shoot. Like I would, he's like, if I had the option, I would leave my gun at home. Like, I don't want to take my gun with me. And, and obviously now, don't get me wrong. Obviously policing up here in Canada is a little bit different um, than it is in the U S in some places. Um, but he, that's the mindset that he had. And it, it brings me back to kind of an old scenario that we would talk about when we talk about, um, you know, recruitment, right? When we have officers come in to go through recruitment, you give them a scenario where it's something like um, call officer, call for help. You come around the corner. Um, there's a barricade or a fence, chain link fence, maybe between down an alley between you and your partner, your partner's there. They're prone out on the ground. Suspect has a baseball bat. Um, what do you do? Right. And it's surprising. I was talking to this recruiter that gave me this scenario once. And he's like, the, the amount of answers that you get before somebody goes to, I would pull my gun out and shoot them. It's uh, I'd scale the fence. I'd call for backup. I'd run around the block and see if I could access it from the other side. I would do this, this, that tell them and yell, tell them to stop. And it's so funny that it's just humans are not hardwired for violence. That's a fact. Anybody who follows and reads any of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's work uh, on killing is a great book. It's a, a great depiction of human beings, just inability to want to harm other human beings. Um, and we see it in the military. We see it in law enforcement. And of course, nobody goes out on duty the day of their shift saying, hey, I want to kill somebody today, um, which may or may not be the opinion of the general public right now. But you go out there. And your goal is to, to not do harm. It's to prevent harm to the community. And I think that a lot of these things are being lost in translation, that people are taking this very emotionally based approach to policy, right? We saw it up here in Canada. We had a, we had one of the, we had the ma the worst mass shooting in Canadian history in Atlantic Canada early, earlier this year. Um, we had an RCMP officer killed. The suspect was eventually uh, tracked and killed by other members of the agency. Um, but because of that, our prime minister basically took the, the opportunity 
um, and those listening on podcasts can't see my air quotes, took the opportunity to enact legislation that banned AR style rifles from our country completely. Um, and it was, it was an emotionally based decision. People that back, it was emotionally based. The shooting itself had nothing to do with legally purchased firearms or assault rifles, but because it was something that was top of mind for people, the politicians capitalized on it. I see the same thing from the 30,000 foot view happening in the United States right now with a lot of the policies that are being enacted because of George Floyd, because of everything that's happened. People are making these split decisions without actually doing more research into it. I'm hearing my constituents, my public, my community wants this. Therefore, I'm going to do it without actually stopping to think, should I do it? Mm-hmm. What are the repercussions if we do this? What are the repercussions if we reduce our police budget or if we take away training or take away specialized units, right? You want to talk about New York? Look what happened when they took that special u- the, the crime prevention unit off the street and their homicides went up, what, 300%. You can't, it's... Too many decisions are being made without and without any type of thought put behind them. Um, and I don't have an answer for that question. I don't have an answer for that. And I, and I hopefully somebody a lot smarter than me is working on it and is able to, to try to help turn things around. Yeah. So that really uh, dovetails into what I wanted to ask you in your expertise as a trainer and in at least in California, at the end of the, the academy, you go through a intensive set of simulations. And with the San Francisco Police Department, we had our own academy. Uh, it came down to you passed the scenarios or you did not pass out of the academy. And there are, um, you know, distractions thrown in and there's some deception and ultimately you may be confronted with a deadly situation. And whether it's a car stop or it's a domestic violence situation or just a contact on the street, it sometimes boils down to follow the hands, watch the hands. Uh, If they don't follow the commands, be on alert, be on guard, be ready to pull your weapon. And so I think sometimes, you know, different individuals take that training and they leave the academy in this heightened sense of alert and this heightened sense that everybody who doesn't show their hands uh, is out to kill them. And I've heard Dave Grossman speak a couple of times and I've heard to speak him speak to those situations. Um, recently in, in San Francisco, two different rookie officers in two separate uh, incidents uh, recently indicted, one indicted by the DA, a very liberal-leaning DA himself, and another through a grand jury. And in both cases, um, one, one of the officers had four days out of the police academy. Um, another officer uh, was, they were both in, in field training with, a, with an FTO. Um, and one of the officers had been assaulted uh, by a suspect, uh, a burglar who uh, was crazed and, and beat the officer in the head with a bottle. And um, I'm wondering, d- does training uh, have anything to do with um, the reactions by some of these uh, younger people, people new to the, to the job? Does training do that? Um, it depends. It depends on the, fi- the if you have high fidelity training or not. 
It depends on your trainers. It depends on your training program. It depends on your methods of instruction. It depends on the retention of the student and what type of stress exposure they're getting. Um, mm. I think the biggest misconception in training, especially when we talk about scenario-based training, is the idea of stress inoculation. It's just not true. It's not a thing. We cannot inoculate somebody to stress. What we can do is we can expose them to stress and teach them to regulate that exposure in their own body so that they can react in a way that we want them to. Um, and so again, it's understanding core concepts behind training. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with those, those two instances that you named, but when we talk about, you know, officers coming out of Academy that are hypervigilant, I mean, we want, we want them to be vigilant. We want officers to be vigilant their entire career. We see in the later periods, you, you almost see this, this um, dovetail effect for officers during their career where they're very hypervigilant at the beginning. Then they get into a lull of, ah, this is old hat. I can let my guard, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, but I know what's going on. So I don't have to be worried about that kind of stuff to near the, nearing the end of their career where it's like, I got to be back on this train because I don't want something to happen to me two weeks out of retirement. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting concept. When we talk about vigilance, we talk about situational awareness. Um, situational awareness is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about. And there's so many situations that could be avoided use of force, deadly force, or otherwise, if the officer was more situationally aware of what was happening in the circumstance, um, you talked about that example of the, the firearm being on the table in the scenario, you know, I mean, firearms present, the fact that you don't have one in your hand is a red flag, right? I mean, you have, you have these things where it's, you have to prepare yourself for success. You have to prepare yourself and be ready to act on things, even though you don't want them to happen, you have to be prepared for it. Mm. You know, I did, um, in earlier in July, we ran the international law enforcement training summit. And, um, I had a guest on that ran a session. I'm sure some of your listeners probably know him, Tim Kennedy, um, UFC fighter, uh, green beret, just a, an all out badass of a dude. Um, he, he was on, we ran a session and everyone's like, super excited. They're like, what's he going to do? Is he going to do fighting? Are we going to do shooting? Like, what is he doing? We literally did a whole hour and a half on situational awareness and everybody was like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> what, what is this? But it's, it's funny. And I love to use this example because you have one of the most hardened soldiers, fighters, combative experts in the world. And when he says, I want to talk to officers he says, I want to teach them situational awareness because the best, the top tier one guys, the top SWAT operators, the top officers, the top experts in the world understand that you can avoid a good portion of all of this force that you're training and planning to use just by being situationally aware, mm. by understanding your surroundings, by understanding and reading the suspects, by understanding and maybe not automatically assuming because I showed up to the domestic that the female is the victim and the male is the aggressor. Good point. Right. You have to, you have to start thinking outside of the box. Uh, that was what that talk was about. Um, but it's also something that we need to be bringing up in, in training, especially when we talk high fidelity scenario based training as trainers, we have to start developing these scenarios in ways that is realistic so that when officers leave the scenarios that also that they're not, the last thing in their mind was I didn't do that. And I got shot. 
we don't want that to be the last thought in their mind when they're leaving training. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's on, it's the onus on the instructor themselves to, to learn and know how to actually conduct training correctly. Hmm. It's on the agency to employ the right instructors into those roles. And it's on the individual officer themselves to sit back and say, listen, I, I obviously don't know as much as I think I do. So I need to be a sponge and absorb all of this and continually educate myself day after day throughout my entire career um, and not just sit on my laurels and, and just hope that nothing happens to me. Right. No, that's good advice. And yeah, I don't know that, you know, in agencies that have dedicated trainers, that there's that kind of turnover that you're talking about, that if they're not effective, you know, that there are mechanisms to, to switch them over. Um, so let's, let's wrap up a little bit. Um, thanks for taking your time and expertise and your perspective and helping us out, uh, try to sort this out. It's, you're in a unique situation, like you say, 30,000 feet, probably more since you're up in the great white North. Uh, but uh, you, you're, you're watching it from the, the sideline. I can imagine, I'm sure you've got much more to say. Um, but training, I think, I think that's your bottom line, isn't it? Training, 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 and, and play like you practice and practice like you play. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll always promote training. The more training that you do, whether it's yourself, like just read Here's the thing that people don't understand. Like everybody thinks that you have to do all this high speed training, like going down to these awesome training facilities and getting to do stuff with former operators or, you know, team guys. That's not what we're talking about. Like training could be something as simple as reading a book. Mm -hmm. Training could be something as simple as reviewing old reports that you've written and re and, and reading through your report, going through that, that actual call in your mind and working through it in your mind saying what went right, what went wrong, what could I have done differently? Right. How is this report written correctly or incorrect? Like there's so many things when we talk about training that it's not all about spending money and going to do all the cool high speed stuff. Mm. A lot of it can be done in your own mind, just playing through scenarios in your brain. Right. I mean, that's my favorite thing. We talk about visualization or imagination drills. Um, that's probably my number one thing out of every class that I've ever taught. Um, that's what I try to leave people with. I say, when you're done this class, what I want you to do is when, you know, when you're, when you're walking around your house, when you're driving your car, when you're walking through the mall, when you're doing whatever, I want you to just think of a scenario and play it through start to finish in your mind, good or bad. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I do it all the time. I'm in my shower. Right. I'm butt naked. Somebody breaks in my front door. What do I do? Like, where am I in the house? Where are they in the house? Where are they in relation to my children, to my wife? If I have a pet, um, where are any, like, what am I in a going to be coming out of this in a hallway? Um, is the floor going to be wet because I'm wet? All of these things, you have to work through this process, but it gets your mind in a, in a, in a state of just understanding scenarios, right? Understanding what could possibly happen. And just because you can't imagine all the billions and billions and billions of possibilities that could happen to you on duty, there's going to be something in there that's going to trigger and allow you to roll a dex that information faster when the actual situation occurs. So, um, I mean, there's thousands of, there's thousands and thousands of instructors in the United States and in North America that are absolutely masters at teaching this. So all I would say to anybody listening to this right now is if you're at an agency, if you're in an instructor role, if you're an FTO, if 
you do anything in terms of training, reach out and just even use Google. Um, I mean, Google law enforcement training. You can email me directly. You can email me Adam at ILET dot network. I will ask, ask me your question and I will put you in touch with whoever it is in that lane that you're wanting to speak with, because I think the biggest misunderstanding about trainers is that people are like, Oh, like it's hard to get them to get their information. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not every single person that I work with and train with, they want to share their knowledge and information. They, because their goal is to save, save the officers. And so you reach out to me, I'm going to give you as much knowledge and information as I can. And same thing with everybody that we work with, because that's the end at the end of the day, we want you to be able to go home safe to your families. Yeah, that's sage advice. And that's, I learned that from your podcast last week that everyone was so open and sharing with uh, their knowledge and their information. And yeah, it's out there. Uh, whenever I'm looking for a, a podcast guest, uh, the doors are always wide open. I can't believe, um, you know, how open people are, but, but I think there's that sense among law enforcement trainers to get the word out. If you can make anybody safer, uh, it's, it's a great effort. And I love what you're saying about situational awareness. We do it. I mean, we did it in a radio car, go into a, a to a fight or to a domestic violence or whatever uh, my partner and I would always bounce it off. Okay, you do this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll do that. If he's got this, we do this. Uh, and then we did it. We transitioned that same technique into promotionals where in a radio car, we'd say, okay, what if they asked you this? And you're constantly thinking. So that's, that's great. Sometimes we forget about that and we operate in our own silos. And it's okay to, to be in a silo, but it's, it's great to get an outside perspective. Real quickly, I, and I don't want to, you know, I know we're at the end of this, but just on your point there, um, I want to bring up something that's exactly in line with all this going to bring, kind of bring it all together. Um, officer ambushes. Um, it's something that's, it's gaining prevalence, uh, especially in the United States right now. Um, and you're talking about, you know, hey, we're driving down to a call, you know, maybe we turn onto the block. You could be having that, this is something we do in the military all the time. We're, we're in a convoy, we're doing some type of patrol. I'm sitting there, I'm talking to my two IC, I'm talking to whoever and saying, hey, if such and such, if we hit contact on our left, this is going to be what we do. If we hit contact on our right, this is what we're going to do. Contact front. What are, what are our SOPs, right? Is your agency SOP if you hit contact that you drop behind the block of the vehicle in the car, that you exit the vehicle, get behind the vehicle for cover, whatever that is, like, and it's all situation dictates, but these are scenarios that officers should be doing as they're approaching these high risk calls. Mm -hmm. We're in a, we're in a, a known gang neighborhood. Um, you know, we're driving in on this call. Okay. We hit this block. If we hit contact on our right side, I'm going to swerve the car to the front. We're going to open our doors, get to the back of the vehicle, access the trunk, access our AR, whatever it is. Call, you know, you call, I'm going to do this. You do that. Having that short discussion, it takes 10 seconds. Right. But imagine if that does happen, you're going to be so much better prepared than if you didn't pre-play that scenario as you were turning that corner. Yep. Yeah. Great advice. Can't go wrong doing that. Well, thanks, Adam Kanakin. Thanks for taking time. Uh, what are you currently working on? How can people get a hold of you? You just gave out your your website. What's what's in your future? Yeah. Well, um, coming up in January, you know, we're running the ILFE, so the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructor. We're going to be facilitating their online event. 
Um, so that's going to be an awesome thing that we're doing. And then coming up in May, we're running the International Summit on Counter Sex Trafficking. Um, and that's going to involve agencies internationally, Canada, US, Caribbean, um, Interpol, all Europe, Australia. I mean, you name it. We have the best experts in the world. Um, and that's going to be free for all officers uh, internationally. Um, and so great. we're hoping to get about 100,000 officers on that. Um, so those are two massive events that we have coming up very shortly. There's a lot more coming down the pipe. Um, but you can find everything at ILET Network. So it's ILET.network is the website. Um, we'll have all the events there. Um, we're going to have all the instructors listed eventually. We're going to have the podcast on there. It's basically a hub of information. As, as you had mentioned and, and what we just briefly talked about is that collaboration between instructors and speakers and experts. That's really what we're doing with the ILET Network. It's it's really a collaboration Um we don't, we don't play business. We don't play politics. It's all about just getting the best training out to as many people as possible. Um, and so if you're interested in training, it's a great resource and you can always contact us directly and uh, we'll pass you along to absolutely anybody that we can. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. Uh, thanks for helping train law enforcement officers uh, internationally around the country and North America. And sounds like sex, sex offender, uh, sex trafficking, you're going to go um, international, multinational. So best to you. Stay well. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate it, brother. Good having you. And to our listeners, thanks again for listening. Are you get the training? Are you getting the training that you need? Uh, do you have enough availability of force options to protect yourself or others uh, to apprehend fleeing uh, subjects or resisting subjects? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, drop me an email at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Be well, stay safe. Thanks for your service. I'm Jim Dudley. 